quick disclaimer, there are some slight adult themes in this episode, and more graphic than usual violence. Check out the discussion post at mythpodcast.com for more detailed info. This week, on the Myths and Legends podcast, we're continuing the story of Jason and the Argonauts. You'll see that the Golden Fleece makes a very tasteful comforter, and that one Argonaut has a bright future as a wedding singer, if the whole epic hero thing doesn't work out. Then, on the Creature of the Week, it's the Sea Trow, a scaly, stupid ape who's really just trying to avoid an awkward dinner with his cousins. This is the Myths and Legends podcast, episode 46C, The Long Way Home. This is a podcast where I tell stories from folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. This is the third episode in a series on Jason and the Argonauts, so if you haven't heard the first two, you'll probably want to go back to 46A to start the series. Previously on the show, Jason, a prince of the Greek city of Aeolcus, was chased out by his evil uncle, who usurped his father's throne. He returned years later to see his father and win back his throne, and he was sent on the quest for the Golden Fleece, which was in the kingdom of King Aetes in Colchis. He gathered together the greatest Greek heroes of the time, and after a long adventure where they accidentally marooned Hercules on an island, they arrived in Colchis. The king's daughter, Medea, was hit by one of Cupid's arrows and fell in love with Jason. She helped him win the fleece. And when King Aetes refused to give it up, she then decided to help him steal it, out from under the sleepless dragon that guarded it. Medea had led him to the grove. She had insisted on coming, and when she explained it, Jason agreed that it made sense. She knew the paths that no one else took, and she could help him find the grove where Ares' dragon guarded the Golden Fleece and get back to the Argo before anyone noticed. If Jason went by himself, then he would just bumble through the darkness on his own, and it would take him four times as long. The moon lit the grass of the grove. The fleece was just beyond, shrouded in darkness. Jason slid his sword out and told Medea to stay back. Medea ignored him, and together they walked into the grove. Jason could hear something rustling in the trees ahead, shrouded in shadow. He heard a breathing in the darkness. It was out there, just beyond the moonlight, waiting. It never slept, so there would be no sneaking up on it. Jason knew he must fight it. He clenched his jaw and pulled out his sword. When the sword flashed in the moonlight, it came for him. It shot from the trees, and Jason saw it. He had made a huge mistake. It reared up in the moonlight and uttered a loud and terrible shriek that reverberated through the countryside and the city. Jason's ears were ringing. There was no way anyone in Colchis was sleeping after they heard that. It reared up before him. It was a giant serpent, nearly four times Jason's size. It saw Jason, hissed, and went in for the kill. Jason flinched and turned away, as, as I think anyone would do if death by dragon tooth was imminent. When, moments later, he did not find himself inside the serpent's mouth, he opened his eyes to see Medea standing in front of him. Her eyes were locked on the serpent, who couldn't tear its gaze away from her. It had been stopped mid-strike by Medea and her magic, and that was the only thing that held it there. She was saying something, singing something. The serpent still snapping its jaw at the pair, was starting to relax and lower onto the ground. 
She had immobilized it. She was putting it to sleep. It was still straining as best it could, still trying to get the pear in its jaws, but it couldn't hold itself up anymore. Soon, it was on the ground, and Medea, still singing, was pulling something out of her satchel. She produced a glass container, took the stopper out, and doused the serpent's eyes. Sleep took it, and it finally stopped trying to eat them. Medea finally exhaled once she was sure it was asleep. I am glad that worked, she said. Put the glass back in her bag. Is it dead? Jason asked. Not dead. Sleeping, Medea said. Jason stood there, mouth agape. You are the best fiancé ever, he said. Medea smiled, and together they ran to the other side of the clearing. After they got the fleece, they rushed back to the Argo, the entire city behind them. When Aetes heard the dragon shriek, he didn't waste time sending people to the grove. He knew the fleece had been taken, but he wouldn't let it leave his lands without a fight. The Greeks rode the Argo as quickly as they could down the river, and soon they came to the Black Sea. Every Argonaut was rowing as quickly as he could, and they were going as fast as they had ever gone sans Hercules. They were going to make it. Then, they saw the Armada. King Aetes must have known another way to the sea, because when they crossed into the ocean, many ships were on the right. They banked hard and rowed as fast as they could, but it was soon clear that they weren't going to get away. One ship in particular, captained by the prince, Medea's brother, Absurtus, would soon overtake them. It didn't need to stop them, just stall them long enough to let the others catch up. Medea told Jason to stop the ship. Some of the Argonauts laughed at her, but Jason could see that she was serious. She had gotten them this far. Maybe she had a plan. Medea ran to the rear of the ship and yelled for her brother, who was surprised to see her. Everyone thought she was still in bed. Absurtus gritted his teeth and cursed the Greeks for kidnapping her. He told them, when his ship moved alongside theirs, that he was coming aboard to take back his sister. If they attacked him, he would have his sailors signal to the Armada, and they would tear the Argo apart. He just wanted his sister in the fleece, and then they could leave. When he was on board, Medea looked him in the eye and told him, you're neither taking me nor the fleece back to Colchis. They earned it. Wait, whose side are you on here, Medea? I'm your brother, and they kidnapped you. Wait, they did kidnap you, right? Medea? She told Absurtus that she was sorry, that she made her choice the moment she saw Jason, her new fiancé. Absurtus rolled his eyes. Medea, you're my sister and I love you, but never take sides against the family again. You're coming back with me. She was in tears when she told him that she could never come back to Colchis, that she could never return to their family. She told him that she was so, so sorry. In one motion, Medea pulled Jason's sword from his belt and slid it through the gap in her brother's armor at the armpit. She pulled him close and held him there, tears snaking down the shiny bronze of his armor as he struggled. When he was finally dead, the sword clanged on the deck. Medea took a deep breath. It was done. Now, there was truly no going back. There would be time for mourning and regret later. She wouldn't let his death be for nothing. Get his armor off. She commanded of the stunned Argonauts all around her and cut him to pieces. They got away. Medea knew that her father would be on board the pursuing ships. The Colchian ship saw Absurtus' head first and slowed to fish it out of the water. 
After that, the purpose of the expedition changed from getting the fleece back and punishing the Argonauts to collecting the prince's body parts so he could have a proper burial. The sons of the North Wind, the brothers that chased the harpies last episode, flew out and reluctantly distributed the body parts so that the Colchian ships would have to zigzag to get them all. In hours, the Argonauts were out of sight. I should say that not every version has Medea murdering her brother in cold blood. Some do, but others just have her luring him to a peace meeting when he preempts their trip to the next stop. Jason murdered Absurtius in that version, with Medea being an enthusiastic accomplice. The Argonauts then slaughtered the Colchians, and that's how they got away. I personally liked this version better, because it really shows Medea's complete commitment to the Argonauts, and her violent abandonment of her family. Whatever version you go with, though, Medea did need to be purified for playing so active a role in her brother's murder. Alright, now we can get back to the story. I should also note that they were not going back the way they came. They were taking the northern route, from the Black Sea to Greece. What northern route, you ask? Excellent question. As we all know, there's an ocean that surrounds Europe, and goes straight through modern-day Russia. So, they were just going to take the slightly longer route around undiscovered Scandinavia, around the British Isles, and down around the southern tip of Spain, through a strait that Hercules is credited with creating. So yeah, slightly shorter. The mood toward Medea on the Argo changed after that incident. She was no longer this kind-hearted defector, but a vile witch who would kill her own brother in cold blood. We've talked about this numerous times, but killing a family member was very bad for the ancient Greeks. We've talked about other heroes having to seek purification after doing that. The purification was usually commanded by an oracle, though, and the Argonauts did not have an oracle. They had a sentient plank of wood that could see the future, about which I am not joking. The Argo was tossed by storms for days, and they only avoided wrecking twice because Hera herself came to Earth and warned them, glowing, of course, to turn around. The ship finally spoke up, saying, Hey guys, I know I haven't really said much up until this point, and it kind of just seems like a plot device so that you know what to do next, but this woman here, she really needs to purify herself for her crime. She's going to need to meet up with her aunt. She knows the one I'm talking about. Okay, that's all I had to say. I'm going to quiet down for literally the rest of the trip. Some of the writers seem to curb from the Odyssey for the next couple of things. And since I really want to save some of the oddities for that story, I'm going to skip past them. Despite being set later, the Odyssey is a much older story than Jason and the Argonauts. If you're familiar with the Odyssey, then you'll know the character of Circe. She'll play a large role in the Odyssey, but she was King Aetes' sister, and she's the one who purified Medea of her brother's murder. In addition to Circe's appearance, the crew safely navigates Scylla and Charybdis, as well as the Sirens. In fact, one Argonaut played so well that he completely upstaged the Sirens. And if you don't know who the Sirens are, they are women, or creatures, or mermaids, that sing so well that they are completely irresistible to sailors. They live by jagged rocks and purposely try to wreck ships. Some stories say that they're cannibals and thus eat the sailors. Anyway, one Argonaut played so well that he completely upstaged the Sirens, and since the song was so much better than theirs, the crew was not tempted to go for the sirens. They just really enjoyed a song. If he didn't already have a career as an epic hero, that Argonaut, named Orpheus, could always fall back on one as a musician, who sang so well that he could make ships crash. Which, yeah, there's a huge market for that in Greek mythology. They had been at sea for weeks. The Argonauts were cranky, dirty, and really fed up with one another. They just wanted a hot bath, and to not see another epic hero for a while. But they were stuck here. Then they saw an island. A large one. It was Crete, the home of King Minos, and the place where Zeus had taken Europa in the first episode of this series. Medea knew it, 
and she knew what else lurked on the island, other than a super evil king and his minotaur, which is actually dead at this point. She told everyone that they could not get off the boat. The Argonauts were livid that Jason was listening to his fiance. Again. First, they couldn't get off at Circe's Island, for reasons I'll go over when we talk about the Odyssey, and now they couldn't get off here. Though, Theseus was fairly cool with them, just kind of skipping this one. He did not have great memories of Crete. Medea asked them to stay far back. She and Jason would take a smaller boat and rowed ashore. If they survived, then the rest of the Argonauts could come. If they didn't, then the smelly, angry heroes would see what she was trying to warn them about. When they were on the boat, Medea turned to Jason and told him that she needed him to keep rowing no matter what. Medea knew the spell and, and she just hoped she could get close enough in time. And she hoped her fiancé wouldn't flinch again, like he did with the serpent guarding the fleece. She took a deep breath when she saw it emerge. It was the thing that Zeus had left to guard Europa. Medea had only read bits and pieces here and there and the stories of those that had survived, but there was a giant bronze automaton, a robot. Its name was Talos, and it picked up boulders and threw them at ships that tried to land on Crete. It emerged from behind a mountain, and in a few strides, it was standing on the shore. It looked down at the Argo, sitting far off, and didn't hesitate. It picked up a boulder big enough to sink the ship with the first hit. That's when the song hit its ears. Medea was standing on the front of the rowboat, singing the song that she had used to lull the serpent to sleep. She was singing as loud as she could, and it appeared to have stopped Talos. She just had to keep singing. The giant was frozen in place, just like the dragon guarding the fleece had been. Jason kept rowing, and Medea kept singing, until the boat scraped on the sand. Medea looked back at Jason, and he got the message that he should stay on the boat. She turned and kept singing as she approached the robot giant thing. Jason saw her climb the back of one of its ankles, strain, pull out a three-foot-long spike, and then jump down and run as fast as she could away from the thing. Her singing was more like yelling at this point. Soon, she gave up on the singing and just sprinted as fast as she could for the boat. In moments, the giant robot was free from her control. It looked down to see Jason and Medea at the boat, repositioned the boulder to crush them instead of the Argo, and then it began to feel faint. It tried to focus, but it began to stagger a bit. It hoisted the boulder up one more time above its head, that's all it could do. Its arms gave out, and the boulder came down, crushing the bronze head and becoming lodged in the chest. The giant automaton, thankfully, collapsed backward toward Crete, instead of forward on adjacent and Medea. Medea motioned to the Argonauts. It was done. They could come ashore. As the Argonauts hunted for food and just enjoyed not being aboard a rocking ship for the first time in weeks, Medea explained to Jason that Talos, the automaton, had a critical design flaw. It had a nail in the vein in its ankle, which kept all of its blood in its body. If that nail was pulled out by an enterprising young witch who did not wish to be crushed by a boulder, well, then the blood ceased to be in the robot's body. If you think back to the Prometheus episode, Zeus was actually tricked so that his first choice wasn't accepted for how humans would be constructed. And this is a good thing, or else we'd probably have a loose cork on our abdomens that kept all our organs from spilling out on the ground. should not surprise you that the Argonauts run into more trouble, but they also meet a king with kind of the best name ever. And that'll be right after this. This week's episode is brought to you by Harry's Razors. Around the first century BC, Roman men would get a daily shave from an iron razor. The downside? The iron blunted quickly, leading to scrapes and nicks. 
It's okay though, because they were soothed with a balm made from old spider webs, soaked in oil and vinegar. Harry's razors are German engineered and they give me the smoothest, closest shave I've ever had. The cartridges come with five blades and a lubricating strip and they only come as often as you need them. Really, the whole pack looks cool and you get an awesome premium razor for the price you pay for one or two blades at a drugstore. Harry's is so confident in the quality of their blades that they'll send you their popular free trial set, which comes with a razor, five blade cartridge, and shaving gel. It's free when you sign up for a shave plan, just pay shipping. Plus, there's this special offer for fans of the show. Enter code MYTHS at checkout and you get a post-shave balm added to your order for free. Not only does it smooth your skin and smell great, but it doesn't contain any spider webs. Go to harrys.com, that's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com, and enter code MYTHS at checkout to claim your free trial set and post-shave balm. That's harrys.com, code MYTHS. This week's episode is brought to you by Bombas Socks. In the time of today's story, socks consisted of animal skin foot bags stuffed with matted fur and drawn up and tied around your ankle. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that they probably did not breathe very well. Bomba socks are seriously the most comfortable socks I've ever worn. You actually notice your socks, but in a good way. They sent me some, and I've been wearing them nonstop. I mean, I have multiple pairs. I haven't been wearing the same socks for days. The socks are way better than normal socks, and you can feel it. They breathe, yet they're warm enough. Stay up, yet they're not too tight. And the ankle socks have a little tab on the heel to prevent chafing. What I thought was cool, though, was that Bombas has donated more than a million pairs of socks to homeless shelters in the U.S. They donate one pair for every pair purchased. I didn't know it, but socks are the number one requested item in U.S. shelters. If you're looking for an amazing new pair of socks, you can go to Bombas.com. That's B-O-M-B-A-S.com. And you'll get 20% off and free shipping on your first order of four or more pairs. Bombas has a 100% satisfaction guarantee. You'll love them or your money back. No questions asked. Once again, that's bombas.com. All right, now back to the show. The next few days were pretty good for the Argonauts. They got back on the ship cleaned and refreshed, and since Medea was purified from her brother's murder, Hera couldn't list the help of the winds and various sea nymphs to guide them safely around the many dangers of the Mediterranean. Once again running low on supplies, they stopped off in the kingdom of Alcinous, in modern-day Sicily. Sidebar, King Alcinous literally means King Mighty Mind in Greek. And since this story kind of has a lot of names so far, he will henceforth be referred to as King Mighty Mind. The Argonauts were welcomed into King Mighty Mind's palace, and as he opened the doors, Jason, Medea, Theseus, and the others stopped dead. Just inside were warriors from Colchis, Medea's kingdom, and they had come for their kidnapped princess. King Mighty Mind turned to his Argonaut guests and said, I'm sorry, they arrived right before you did. I had no choice. The Colchians demanded the princess, and if they got her now without a fight and with the fleece, then they wouldn't kill the Argonauts to a man. The Argonauts, not ones to take threats at all, gripped their spears and swords, ready for what would come. King Mighty Mind could see that things were one stray arrow away from a bloodbath in his throne room. He put that Mighty Mind to good use and stepped in between the groups. He said that he was king here, and there wouldn't be any fighting, or, or else he would have to throw his own warriors into the fray. And since they were all guests, they did have to respect their host. And so everyone settled down. King Mighty Mind said that it was getting late. He would think of a fair solution, and then he would announce it in the morning. Everyone settled in for an awkward dinner. 
King Mighty Mine was in bed with his wife, Arete, which some sources say means righteous, so we will be calling her Queen Righteous. Well, Queen Righteous said that they shouldn't side with the warriors from Colchis. The fighters from the Argo were legendary warriors and lived way, way closer. Just for some reference, King Mighty Mine's kingdom is on Sicily. It's an island that's part of modern-day Italy, so way closer than the Black Sea. King Mighty Mine said that he was very afraid of King Aetes and Colchis, and again referred to his big muscles. Those muscles just keep popping up in the text, and whenever Aetes flexed. Then, Queen Righteous found a solution. She said that it wouldn't be right to break up a marriage, right? I mean, that's sacred. King Mighty Mine said that he could see where she was going with this. If Medea was still a virgin, then she could go back to her father. If not, then she should stay with Jason. Queen Righteous said, I just said marriage, but you know, sure, that sounds fair. Now, if you'll excuse me, King, I need to go to the bathroom. Down by the docks. For about 45 minutes. Don't wait up. Queen Righteous stole out of the castle. She, too, knowing ways where she wouldn't be seen. She put on a cloak, and before long, she had padded through the streets and found her way to the Argo. A watchman yelled out when she approached, and soon she was sitting with Jason and Medea. She told them that if Medea wanted to continue on with the Argonauts, then they had to get married and consummate the marriage before dawn. They got married on the beach outside a sacred cave. All the Argonauts were in attendance, and Orpheus, the one who had upstaged the sirens, played their reception. They were married there and turned around to see something wonderful. Pear and the Argonauts watched nymphs rise from the sea and come from the trees at the prompting of Hera, to put a bed, candles, flowers, and rugs all around. In minutes, the cave had been transformed from a dripping, dark place to one befitting a prince and a princess. The Argonauts congratulated the pair, and Theseus just had one more thing to add to class up the cave even further, the golden fleece. He laid it on the bed, winked at the pair, and walked back to the ship. They consummated their marriage, apparently on top of the golden fleece, which I hope it's washable. The Argonauts decided to stay up and go partying in town and made a point to tell everyone about the marriage and the consummation. So much so that when King Mighty Mind made the proclamation the next day, it was well known that Jason and Medea were married, so she would be leaving on the Argo. King Mighty Mind half expected a fight from the Colchians, and they were silent for a long while before their captain just said, well, that sucks. King Aetes was so mad that he told us not to come back without Medea, and... As you may know, he has huge muscles. The captain turned to King Mighty Mind and asked, Do you mind if we just go live on that other island over there? We don't want to go back to Colchis. It's far and the king is super scary. King Mighty Mind didn't see a problem with that, congratulated Jason and Medea on their very conveniently timed nuptials, and everyone was happy. Also, and this will matter later, but King Mighty Mind gave Medea some handmaids, some female servants, as a wedding gift. The winds were good, the Argonauts getting along, and they were a couple days out from Sicily when they finally saw the coasts of Greece, of home. It had been a long voyage, but they had finally made it. Almost, because there's no such thing as too long of a story. As soon as they saw the coasts of home, a storm picked up and tossed them all the way to the shores of North Africa. We're not going to spend too long on this, but they became marooned on a large shallow spot in the ocean. It was large enough for them to jump down and stand in two feet of water. They spent days there, nearly exhausting their provisions, before nymphs took pity on them and said that they'd go talk to Poseidon's wife. Long story short, they had to pick up the Argo and put it on their shoulders and carry it back to the open ocean over the course of 12 days. Yeah, it's 
kind of cute that the last trial of their journey is them carrying the ship that carried them, but we really need to keep moving with the story. They ran into Triton, the son of Poseidon, a merman, and messenger of the seas. They passed his test of being nice to him, and he sped them safely on their journey home. There was a celebration in the streets of Iolcus. Four months after it left, the Argoid returned when everyone had thought them dead. Jason walked through the streets with Medea, the golden fleece draped over his shoulder, triumphant and waving to the crowds. Soon, he came to the palace and Peleus met them outside, actually smiling. Jason threw the fleece to the king and demanded that he abdicate, as they had agreed. Peleus said that they could get to that, but first, Jason should go visit his father while he still can. Peleus took Jason and Medea to see Aeson, the aged king. In the time since Jason left, he had become deathly ill, and now he could die any day. Jason burst through the door, and Aeson, too weak to talk, could only smile at the man that his son had become. He tried to say something, but it came out only as a raspy whisper. He was so exhausted from this that he went to sleep. Jason began weeping, everything he had done to save his father, and now the man would die before Jason could even talk to him. They could see that death was moments off. Medea looked around the room to her handmaids and nodded. Now was the time. Medea pulled a dagger from her cloak and slit Aeson's throat. Jason screamed and Peleus laughed. Jason yelled at Medea to stop as she pulled Aeson forward, his blood falling into a basin that Medea's handmaids had brought her. Jason yelled at Peleus to get the guards in here. Peleus just stood there and said, Absolutely not. This is amazing. What a twist. I like your new wife. Jason grabbed Medea by the arm, but she just looked at him with a serious, unflinching gaze. She told them that if he'd ever trusted her, that he needed to trust her now. Back off. Jason staggered backward. He knew better than to cross Medea at this point. He could only stand helplessly and watch her as she drained his father's blood. She said some quick words poured a potion into the blood, and then made a small incision in the corpse's chest. Both Jason and Peleus watched, unsure of what was happening and even more unsure if it was a good thing. Jason knew that it was and Peleus that it wasn't when the wounds on Aeson's neck and chest healed quickly, like Wolverine's. Black slowly bled down his beard and up from his scalp, and his hair was once again full and curly. The wrinkles on his face disappeared, teeth popped back into his gums, and mere moments later, Aeson awakened from death, 40 years younger. He groaned as he rose to a seated position on the bed, and he took a deep breath. He looked at his hands, his strong arms and legs. He was now younger than Jason, which was kind of weird. He leapt from the bed in a way that he hadn't been able to do in years, and Aeson stood eye to eye with the son that he had been forced to give up all those years ago. Hello, son, he said. I think we have some catching up to do. And you, he said, turning to Peleus, you took something that belongs to me. The Argonauts just sort of evaporate from the story after they get back to Iolcus. And no one really seems to trouble themselves with where everyone went. But I'll wrap it up. I can imagine everyone at the dock after four long months together, basically saying that if they never find themselves in the same ship again, it will be too soon. They went their separate ways, Laertes on the first ship back to Ithaca, 
to his young son, Odysseus. Peleus, the future father of Achilles, had a message in Iolcus. His son had been born. He was now the present father of Achilles. He, too, rushed home before all the other Argonauts left the city. Theseus also had a message waiting for him. It was from his old buddy and childhood hero, Hercules, who had apparently made it back to mainland Greece. He had knocked out a few more labors and told Theseus to meet him in Mycenae. He needed Theseus's help. They were going to find the Amazonians. Also, maybe don't take the western road out of Iolcus. On the western road out of Iolcus, the remaining Argonauts looked ahead of them and saw a large, muscly man running at them at full speed. Even if he wasn't wearing a lion cloak and nothing else, and carrying a large club, they would know him anywhere. It was Hercules. The remaining Argonauts screamed and bravely ran away. Hercules got a few and thanked them for marooning him on an island. He thanked them with his club, which is the very worst type of thank you, especially coming from Hercules. Peleus returned home after nearly six months and walking up to his house, he dropped his pack and smiled when he heard the sound of a baby crying. This one, Achilles, had lived when six others hadn't. Though exhausted, he ran as fast as he could and threw open the door and screamed in horror at what he saw. What he saw changed his, his wife's, and Achilles' life forever. And we'll talk about what he saw when we get to the story of the Iliad, something to look forward to. Months passed, and Aeson ruled Iolcus as king, just 21 years too late. Peleus was pardoned for his crimes. He was just a broken old man after all, and the one he had betrayed for the throne was just entering adulthood again, and he would be wary of any moves by Peleus. The old man stayed in his humble house with his three daughters. Medea was welcomed with open arms by her father-in-law, and Jason learned with sadness that his mother had died years ago. She hung herself in anguish. Jason was happy to have years with his father, though at his current age, the man was almost like a brother. The people loved the story of the Argo's journeys, and they were intrigued, yet a little wary of Medea and her magic. Many rich and powerful citizens came to Medea, wanting Medea to return them to youth as well, but she refused almost all of them. One day, Peleus' three daughters came to Medea. They told her all about their father and the sad, lonely life he lived. They said he was filled with regret for all the evil things he had done, and they pleaded with the witch. She told them that she would help them, but Peleus must leave the city as soon as his youth was restored. Aeson, though he was publicly forgiving, privately hated the man and blamed Peleus for the death of his wife. If he found out about this, Medea would be sent back to Colchis to face her father. She told them that she would come to the house the next day. When she knocked on the door of Peleus' shack, they hardly recognized her in the clothes of an old beggar. She quickly entered the home, and the daughter said that Peleus was in the other room, asleep. Medea told them that it was perfect. The next part would not be fun. Peleus had obviously told them how she brought Aeson back to life, right? They gulped and nodded. Medea laid three knives out on the table. She said that she couldn't do it. The old man didn't trust her. He wouldn't let her get close. It had to be them. She saw them hesitating. Medea thought of a solution. There was an old ram outside. She told them to bring him in here and Medea would show them what they needed to do. After Medea killed the old ram and cut it to pieces, she asked one of their daughters to bring the cauldron to a boil. With the cauldron bubbling, Medea dropped the pieces of the ram in, set a spell, and dropped in a bit of potion. The boiling stopped instantly, and the women could see the young lamb in the water. One picked it up and was amazed. Medea had done it. 
Medea handed each one a knife and gave them a bag for the pieces. Medea said that she would be waiting here for them with a cauldron boiling. She said that the pieces had to be small. It wouldn't be easy to do what they needed to do. I mean, it was their father, but remember, they were helping him. He had woken up and Medea could hear the woman knock on their father's door. She heard, oh, hi girls, what, what's wrong? Hey, what's with the knives? Girls? Medea heard the stabs and the screams. Soon, it was done. Peleus, the usurper, was dead. Over the next hour, the daughters had the gruesome task of cutting up their father's body. In the end, it took all three of them to drag the bag out to the cauldron. When they got to the main room, they found the cauldron cold, and Medea standing at the door, smiling a devilish smile. Medea, it's done, one of the daughters said, her, her face tear-streaked. Why isn't the water boiling? Medea? Medea feigned horror and looked at them. What have you done? She asked. Then the realization slowly washed over them of what was going on. They said, Medea, bring him back. You, you can do it. You told us you could do this. Medea, please. She said that she didn't know where they got that idea. Murderers. They pleaded and screamed with Medea to come back, to help them, to bring Peleus back like she said she would. But she continued to act horrified. She pushed open the door and yelled out to the street for help. There had been a murder. She looked back at Peleus' daughters, flashed a cruel smile, and then disappeared on the street. People and guards rushed to the door to see Peleus' daughters covered in his blood, with the remains of their father cut up and stuffed into a bag. I'm not exactly sure what happens next. Medea tricks Peleus' daughters into murdering him in every version, but they have different results. In all versions, Medea flees. It's a heinous trick, and the other family members of Peleus want her dead. In most versions, Jason goes with her. But in most versions, Aeson isn't alive. He was actually killed by Peleus when Peleus thought the Argonauts weren't coming back. This has been a fun story to untangle. Regardless, Medea had to go. Sure, the daughters murdered their father, but that doesn't mean their brothers, Peleus' sons, wouldn't be out for blood. Also, regardless of who technically held the knife, it doesn't look good, with this barbarian witch tricking the three hapless daughters of the former king. Jason had a hard choice to make. He could flee in the night with his new wife from the home he had tried to return to for years, or stay, and let her go unsupported and hiding on her own, a stranger in a strange land, to almost certain death. He didn't need to think about it. His father, Aeson, was alive because of her. He, Jason, was alive because of her. And Iolcus, the kingdom, was back in their family's hands because of her. Jason had no small degree of hatred for Peleus and thought that he got what he deserved. And Medea had left her home for him, forsaking her family and title. He could do that much for her. Besides, he only needed to do it for a few years until the heat died down. Then, he would send a message to his father and Aeson could prepare the way for them to return. Jason kissed her and told her he was coming along, and he had an idea. They gathered together their servants in the night and hired a crew. They would take the Argo, which had been sitting unused for months. They would be the final two Argonauts. As they looked out on the sea, the sky beginning to turn purple with the sunrise, Jason held Medea's hand. They were, once again, fleeing aboard the Argo in the night this time from Jason's home, 
and they were, once again, doing it together. Jason looked at his wife and smiled. He had made a promise never to leave her, and he intended to keep that promise. Next week, we're finishing up the story of Jason and Medea, and we'll catch up with him in exile and see what happens when the epic, dangerous honeymoon is finally over. Also, there'll be an extended Creature of the Week, and I'll finally be talking about the Selkie, which is by far the most requested creature. And before moving on, I should say that I sped up one thing in today's telling. When Medea made Aeson young again, it's this very drawn-out thing in Ovid's Metamorphoses where Jason wishes that he could give up his life for his father to be young again. And Medea says, well, how about you don't give up your life to make your father young again, and I just make him young again? Jason said, oh, yeah, definitely, let's do that. She does that, but it's this long process where she eventually does kill him and replaces blood in a ritual to Hecate, or Hecate as I've been corrected. We ended up in the same place, but I thought the quick surprise killing was more fun. I just wanted to let you know. I want to say thanks to Shuntry. Is anyone home? Cherry Wine 305, UV Mama, H Thrushing, Sims 251, Your Name Here, Mecca S, Reese Creeds, PM Shifners, Birchies, BWRE2, Mac User 12345, Moose5, MZ Sullivan, Great Game Because, Pretty Cat, and Anaguchi for the reviews on iTunes. It's great to hear from you, and I really appreciate you taking the time to write a review. If you'd like to leave a review, iTunes or the iOS podcast app are the best places, and you can find the show there at itunes.mythpodcast.com. There's also a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of nine owl pellets, you can get extra episodes, ad-free versions of the show, and source pack ebooks that you really should not try to dissect, because they're digital, and that's a really great way to ruin your smartphone. If you're interested in the membership, check out support.mythpodcast.com. The creature this week is the sea trow from the Orkney Islands and the Shetland Islands in Scotland. If you've listened to some of the King Arthur episodes, the Orkney Islands are the islands that King Lot ruled. They are, apparently, also the home of the ugliest, stupidest, and laziest creatures imaginable. The sea trow, unsurprisingly, lives in the sea, and they are somehow scaled and wrinkled like a prune. They have faces like monkeys, feet the size and shape of millstones, and long, unwieldy limbs. They aren't exactly evil, but like most creatures, they enjoy playing pranks. Unfortunately, their pranks don't always work out well. They aren't very smart, so more often than not, they are the only ones that get their pranks. They are also remarkably awkward on land, with their heavy feet and long limbs. I couldn't find a single example of one of their pranks, but the way I imagine it, it's like getting ready for work and finding a salt shaker in your shoe, and then looking up and seeing a wrinkly, scaled chimp hobbling away slowly, and laughing hysterically. It's not even a prank, it's just confusing. The pranks are short-lived though. They don't want to spend too long on land because they have angry cousins. The cousins are the much smarter hill trow. They live in mounds filled with gold, food, and great wine, which I think is way better than under the sea. They kind of just like to party and they are known for kidnapping musicians and making them play for their feasts in a dinner that is surely comfortable and enjoyable for all. In addition to terrible tipping, they don't pay the musician. When they finally boot the musician out of their little hill home in the early morning, the world looks drastically different for the musician because everyone the musician knew and loved, well, they're now dead. 
The home of the Hiltrow is one of those magical places where only a few hours pass for those inside, but years and years pass for the outside world. So if you're a musician visiting the Orkney Islands and a squat, sinister-looking humanoid approaches you about a gig, maybe you don't go. Unless you get cash up front and don't care about it being the year 2070 tomorrow. The sea trout aren't as mean though, but they are lazy. Instead of catching their own dinner, they'll just lay beneath fishermen and wait for their line to snag something and they'll bite the fish off the hook. If you see an obvious problem with this, then you are smarter than the sea trout. The fisherman will accidentally hook the sea trout and pull the creature to the surface, where I would scream incessantly and be completely useless if a scaly chimp head popped out of the water right in front of me. I guess fishermen in the Middle Ages were kind of used to this creature. They would just smack it with an oar until it broke loose. The sea trout, with its millstone feet, would then just drop to the seafloor, look around, and bite another hooked fishing line. I told you they weren't smart. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. Other music is by Poddington Bear and Blue Dot Sessions. Links to still more music are in the show notes. Thanks again to Bombas Socks for sponsoring us today. Bombas are the most comfortable, best-fitting socks I've ever worn. They donate one pair of socks to those in need for every pair purchased, because socks are the number one requested item in shelters across the United States. Just go to bombas.com, that's B-O-M-B-A-S.com, and you can get 20% off and free shipping on your first order of four or more pairs. Bombas has a 100% satisfaction guarantee. You'll love them or your money back. No questions asked. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.